The 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, you are as much serving God in looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear and minding the house and making your household a church for God as you would be if you'd been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts. When you think about the call of Christ on every Christian's life, right, the call to make disciples and everything that goes along with that, like showing people who Jesus is by first sharing the truth about him in love and, and then of course leading them to him and, and then once they come to Christ, continuing to teach them and shepherd them and protect them and sacrifice for them and hold them accountable, right? And equip them for the work of the ministry and then you guide them through life. I mean, when, when you think about all that is involved in the lifelong process of making disciples, I cannot think of a better example of someone who answers that call to the highest degree more than a mother. In fact, there's, there's nothing quite as strong uh, or resolute or enduring or committed or caring or admirable or noble among all of humankind as the heart of a mother. What it takes to raise other human beings from birth into adulthood and sometimes beyond is beyond me. Of course, fathers have a profound, important, uh, profoundly important role to play in the raising of children, but the day in, day out, 24-7, hands-on, non-stop, selfless pouring out of oneself that is standard operating procedure for so many mothers, it amazes me. And honestly, if I could find a stronger word to describe it, I would. It is endless, exhausting, often thankless work being done without fanfare or recognition by women all around the world every single day. And the truth is, there is no higher calling than motherhood because it embodies so much of the heart of Christ for his people. And so uh, each year we take one day, right? One day out of 365 of them, to publicly recognize our mothers for who they are and what they've done over the previous 364 of them. It seems absurd to me, actually. Nonetheless, to all of our mothers here today, we thank you beyond words. We love you earnestly and deeply. We respect you more than you know. and We honor you for who you are and what you do every single day. Can we just take a moment right now and give a big hand to all of our moms in here? The heart of a mother mirrors the heart of Christ. The sacrificial love for others under their care, the constant nurturing and teaching day in and day out, the protecting, the leading, the encouraging, the, the laying down of their own lives in so many ways so that others can live their lives to the fullest. I watched my mom do it day in and day out. I watched my wife do it every day now. All of those selfless qualities the constant offering of self to others that can be found in the heart of a mother, we find that same heart in Christ. And it's those very same qualities that the Apostle Paul is chiefly concerned with teaching us in this second half of chapter 15 in this letter to the church in Rome, as we'll see as we continue this morning working our way through our sermon series uh, through Romans, where Paul gives special attention to what the church is offering to God and to one another, 
and actually to him personally as well because although there was great need at the time in much of the church, there was also uh, uh, tremendous calling on them to continue the ministry, right? So look, the first century, the church was under persecution. Uh, there was famine. There were false teachers infiltrating the ranks of the church. And uh, you want to talk about fake news? The religious Jews and pagan Gentile governments were spreading disinformation about the church in mass. It was an incredibly difficult time to be a member of the church. And yet the work of the church was clearly expected to continue regardless of how great the need was. Right? Nothing in terms of their gospel ministry was slowing down just because the needs spiritually, materially, and otherwise were great and even increasing. And so Paul was teaching them that in God's kingdom, right, in, in his government, in his economy, no matter how great the need, your calling is always greater than your need. Your calling is always greater than your need. So whatever, listen, whatever he's called you to do in this life, there is no size or amount of need that should stop you from fulfilling that calling. Okay, the size of your need should never limit the size of your calling. In other words, you can do great things for God even when there's great need in your life. You believe that? You can do great things for God even when there's great need in your life. And so if God has called you to something great, which by the way, he has, in case you didn't know, well then it's important to understand that a great need never equates to a lesser calling. We're still commanded and expected to offer what we've been given to the work of the church, the work of the gospel, to the work of Christ, even out of our own need, as we're gonna see. And by the way, uh, how often do we see mothers do just that, right? I can't tell you how many times I've watched my mother or my wife do without so that the kids or someone else wouldn't have to. Because your calling is greater than your need. And I, th I think mothers probably understand that more than most people. And that's something we can all learn from. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and finish out chapter 15. We'll begin with verses 14 through 21. So this is where we left off, Romans 15. And we'll start by reading verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Okay, so after using the preceding chapters which we've gone through to lay out for both the Jews and Gentiles the salvation and justification in Christ, of course, that we know only comes by grace through faith, Paul now explains the result of that justification in our everyday lives, what, what that 
looks like or should look like in the life of every believer, listen, especially in relationship to each other, to other believers. And so he says, first of all, as followers of Christ, we now have the ability to instruct one another, which by the way means far more than just to teach. It's the word nutheteo in the ancient Greek. It means to instruct, admonish, specifically to warn and counsel. It's actually giving each other practical real life wisdom and counsel through accountability, encouragement, and even warning, if need be. It's, it's the daily interactions that we have with other believers that I'm just telling you, I personally uh, couldn't get through this life without. No way, the, the, the conversations that go beyond the surface, you know what I'm talking about? Beyond the superficial. So what we're talking about, when we talk about getting plugged in, connected to the church, it's those relationships that help shape your life through people who aren't afraid to tell you the truth even when that's not necessarily what you wanna hear. It's those kind of deep relationships between believers that actually we all need. That's what Paul is talking about here. And in fact, one of the greatest examples I can think of of that kind of relationship is between a mother and her child. Because the heart of a mother mirrors the heart of Christ in so many ways. And one of the things you can almost always count on a mother to do is to tell you what you need to hear, even when that's not what you want to hear, right? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you are grateful for a mom who wasn't afraid to tell you the truth even when that was the last thing you wanted to hear, right? And why did mom do that? Because she loves you. And so even if telling you the truth means wounding your heart at times, moms will do that in order to bring you back where you need to be. And so much like uh, so many of the character traits that mothers have in common with Jesus, speaking the truth, even when the truth is unwelcome news, is no uh, exception. Jesus never hesitated to say what was true, even when he knew it would be offensive to those he was speaking to. And, and that's what Paul is referring to in this letter when he says on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. In other words, because I love you and I'm your brother in Christ, I've pulled no punches with you when it comes to discipleship. I have always given it to you straight, even when it was hard to hear. And the result is a local church that is now full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And to what end? Paul continues, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, that word offering that Paul uses there is the same word that Septuagint, it's the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses to describe the sacrifices that were offered on the altar to God. And so instead of a slain animal ascending to God in the flames of a physical altar, there's a spiritual ascent to God as we offer ourselves, our souls and our bodies and our minds and our hearts as an acceptable offering to God. It's actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 66, 20. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters. Litters were the boxes they would hang over the camels to transport small children or women or affirmed people when they were traveling. And on mules and dromedaries. Dromedaries were the Arabian camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places, from different backgrounds and cultures and upbringings and languages, all coming to Christ and they will lay their lives down before him as an acceptable 
offering. Again, that's how Paul describes these Gentile converts from Jerusalem all the way around. He says to Illyricum. Illyricum is the present day Albania and what used to be Yugoslavia. As an acceptable offering, he says, that he's brought before the Lord, which was a highly controversial and offensive claim for Paul to make as a Jew because, of course, uh, the religious Jews regarded all Gentiles as unclean, unacceptable. Yet Paul says their lives are now an acceptable offering to the Lord because they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which was accomplished, according to Paul, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, which we talked about two weeks ago uh, in the first half of this chapter. And so Paul holds these Gentile believers up as proof that he is carrying out his calling. Right? I have fulfilled the ministry, he says, of the gospel of Christ, despite the great needs and struggles and opposition that he constantly faces everywhere he goes, thereby fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 52, 15, which he quotes, which we just read from the Septuagint. Because Paul understood that his calling was greater than his need. And, and the first part of that calling is to give ourselves, our very lives, to Christ as an acceptable offering. Okay, well, why does Paul describe it as an acceptable offering? Well, because clearly we can offer ourselves in a way, apparently, that is unacceptable. Otherwise, there would be no need to describe their offering as an acceptable offering, right? It would just be an offering. The Apostle Paul said it this way back in chapter 12 of this letter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and what? acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12, 1, the author of Hebrews said it this way, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God, what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28, Jesus said it this way, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. We're going to get to that in a minute. And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 15, 13 through 16. What's interesting about every one of those passages of Scripture is that every one of those statements is conditional. We love to talk about unconditional love. Every one of these statements in Scripture is conditional. Simply the fact that the New Testament writers talk about acceptable worship in many places. Acceptable worship to God means there must be worship, there must be an offering that is unacceptable to God. Otherwise they wouldn't say offer acceptable worship to God. They would simply say offer worship to God. And of course, Jesus was especially clear about it when he said, you're my friends, if you do what I command you, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your sh uh, fruit should abide. Why do we bear fruit that abides? So that, Jesus says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you, okay? According to scripture, what God accepts from us is conditional. Again, the author of Hebrews, writing to a new covenant audience, by the way, says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by doing what? Accepting his gifts, Hebrews 11:4. And if you go back and read that story in Genesis 4, you'll see that while God accepted Abel's sacrifice, he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. 
okay? We were chosen, created, and appointed by God to bear spiritual fruit, which is how we worship him, and yet clearly not every offering, not every sacrifice, not every act of worship is acceptable to God. That flies in the face, I understand, of much of what we're being taught in the modern church era about what what we offer to God because we've been conditioned to believe that anything we offer to God, as long as we're offering something, that it's acceptable. That's not what scripture says. The reality is an acceptable offering according to God is conditional. If you read what Jesus says to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is recorded by the Apostle John. First of all, these are prophetic letters for warning the church today about what happens to those whose worship is unacceptable to God, which includes, of course, his warning. I'm sure you're familiar with it to the church at Laodicea where he says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 16. You understand, he said that to the church, to the local church. In fact, the very last verse in those letters, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3.21, uh, 3.22, if you read those letters, it's clear that these professing believers thought what they were offering to God was acceptable, which is why he was warning them, and by default, us to begin with, because we can believe in Jesus and attend the church and give in the offering and sing the songs and volunteer in the ministry, and that's all great, but we can be offering all of that to God in a way that is unacceptable. While someone right next to us who's doing all of the very same things is accepted by God. How can that be? Paul tells us, in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. How? How have the Gentiles become an acceptable offering to God? By word and deed, Paul says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Listen, in other words, what he's saying is every single thing in you right now, every single thing that in you that is ever acceptable to God is always and only something that has been accomplished in you by the power of God which means anything that you offer to God that is not a direct product of the Spirit of God at work in your life, no matter how good it may be, it's not acceptable. And so Paul says it's, it's only what Christ has accomplished through me that produces an acceptable offering to God, including these Gentile believers. Uh, listen, as offensive as that was to the religious Jews back then, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes were all about what they offered to God. In fact, their entire lives revolved around what they offered to God in worship. They were, there was certainly no lack of good religious behavior in their lives. And yet their worship was largely unacceptable to God. And listen, this is the same danger facing the church today. When we believe that what we're offering to God is pleasing and acceptable to Him simply because we're offering it. Right? Even when our hearts are full of ourselves and full of unforgiveness and pride and greed and bitterness and selfishness and envy and who knows what else and even when it costs us nothing to give whatever we're giving in worship to him yet we believe he's pleased with us simply because we're giving something anything it's just as he says to the church in revelation you say i'm rich 
I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Revelation three seventeen through 19, he's He's talking to the church, to believers who believe that God is pleased with their offering when in reality he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what you're offering me is unacceptable because it's not about what you can produce that matters to God. It's what you allow him to produce in you that matters to God, which requires, by the way, a depth of love and sacrifice for God and for one another that we could never produce on our own. Author and pastor A.W. Tozer once said, no man gives anything acceptable to God until he's first given himself in love and sacrifice. Let's keep reading, verses 22 through 29. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Okay, so up to this point, Paul had been prevented from coming to Rome because of his work of planting churches in unreached areas in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And yet now, he feels like that work in the east has come to an end, and so it's his desire to not only see the Roman church, but for them to also become his base of support for his mission to Spain. Uh, and by the way, by the first century AD, Spain was firmly a part of the Roman Empire, and it uh, provided significant crops, for one thing, uh, to the empire. It was also the fatherland of several important Roman authors and actually later uh, a few emperors, Roman emperors. And so it made sense that Spain would be a strategic location for Paul to evangelize. And although there's actually no visit by Paul to Spain recorded in the New Testament, it is possible he went there, uh, many people believe, after his release from prison in Rome in Acts uh, 28, like around 30 through 31. And in fact, there is some historical evidence after the New Testament that suggests Paul did preach in Spain, although of course we can't say for certain. But with all that in mind, Paul says at the present, the trip to Rome has to be put on hold because he first needs to travel to Jerusalem to bring money that he'd collected from the church members there who were, for the church members there who were poor in Jerusalem. In other words, uh, as desperate as Paul was, to fellowship and be strengthened and renewed and replenished by the church in Rome, as great as Paul's own needs are and his desire to go directly to them, right after laboring for so long and hard in the eastern part of the empire, Paul knows that his calling is greater than his need. And so he's resolved to continue the work before him at the expense of his own needs. 
So he's taking money from the Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia, that's northern and southern Greece today, and delivering it to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. As Paul explains, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Which, by the way, is a practice that Paul assumes is a normal part of the Christian life, a central, even joyful part of our calling to give our very lives as an acceptable offering through the work of the Spirit of God in us and to give our money and our resources as a material offering through the work of God's blessing in us. And so Paul says not only were they pleased to do it, but indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And of course, God has been generous to us, right? I mean, in ways that we could never pay back. You understand what, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross was a gift, not a loan. Right? We know that. We can never pay it back. But his ongoing generosity to us in the form of the daily blessings that he pours out into our lives through the church, that's what Paul's talking about. That generosity demands a response. And we do that primarily for and through the local church. Throughout the, the New Testament, we see believers bringing their tithes and offerings to the church, right? In Acts 2, in Acts 4, of course, in Paul's travels, as we see here, money was collected at the church and then distributed by the church leaders. In Acts 6, we find that the Jerusalem church had a daily feeding program for the most vulnerable among them. Okay, the church would collect funds from the believers and then use that money to minister to those in need, spiritually and physically. And then Paul goes on to explain that when we're generous by giving through the church, God is ultimately glorified. He's worshiped as a result of the generosity of his people. So you can see how it all comes back to Jesus Christ as always, as our focus, even through the material blessings that he pours out daily in our lives. And so when we are blessed, when we're blessed with jobs and income and all the things that make our lives better, we should never make the mistake of thinking that receiving those blessings was the sole point of the blessing. Like it doesn't end there. No, we're blessed so that we can turn around and be a blessing to others, ultimately so that God will be glorified through our offering of generosity. It's part of the spiritual fruit that Jesus talked about that grows or at least is supposed to grow out of the life and calling of every believer. So look, uh, you can have all the talent in the world, all the gifting and wealth and success in the world, but if you're not producing and generously sharing the fruit of God's blessings in your life, you're never going to be truly fulfilled or happy or healthy in this life because God's design for your life is for you to be a blessing to others even as he has blessed you, even out of your own need. There should never be any Christian who ever feels like they can't minister to someone else because of their own need. This is exactly what I've learned from my own mother and from my own wife. As I've watched them give and give and give and give, not only out of their own blessings, but out of their own need at times. Randy Alcorn once said, God is the greatest giver in the universe and he won't let you outgive him. Go ahead and try, see what happens. Okay, I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. The reason an apple tree produces apples is not to feed itself, right? The apple tree doesn't consume its own apples. No, the reason an apple tree produces apples is for the health of those around it, those who need that fruit to grow and become healthy themselves. And so producing apples is not what makes the tree healthy. 
No, producing apples is the sign that the tree is healthy and is helping others become healthy as well. Okay, you don't produce spiritual and material fruit in your life just to make yourself healthy. No, you produce spiritual and material fruit to make others healthy because they need that fruit that you produce to grow and become healthy themselves. And so when God generously blesses us with things like jobs and talents and opportunities and we use those blessings to produce income and resources, what do we do with all that? We use it to generously bless others because listen, it was never meant for you to consume all of that yourself. Yet that's what many of us do. We consume everything that we produce. It's like an apple tree not allowing anyone else to have any of its apples. Right, because it wants to keep all that beautiful fruit to itself. Right? The apples might make the apple tree look beautiful and feel good about itself, but if the tree thinks that's the sole purpose of the apples, well then it's completely missed the point of why it's been given the opportunity to produce those apples in the first place. And ultimately what happens, the, ult the apples rot under the tree, benefiting no one. It's just wasted fruit. The apples are not produced for the consumption of the tree. The apples are produced for the consumption of others who are starving and need its fruit to be fed and to grow and to become healthy. That is, you understand, that's the only reason an apple tree produces apples, to feed others. The reason you've been given good gifts, spiritual and material fruit in your life, is to give it away to feed others the truth of the gospel, to make disciples, to meet their needs. Yes, even their material needs, even out of your own need. It doesn't matter what your station in life is. You can always pour out blessings into other people's lives. Okay, if all you ever do is feed on God's blessings and grow and produce fruit without ever sharing that fruit with others, Ultimately, it doesn't benefit you in the end or anyone else, and eventually that fruit becomes rotten, and it blesses no one, including yourself. This is a central part of the calling of every believer, to generously share what has been generously given to you, even out of your own need. In fact, I would say especially out of your own need, because your calling is greater than your need. And as Pastor Chris, one of our pastors, often says, God always pays for what he orders. Right? So don't allow your own needs to keep you from meeting someone else's. You with me? Don't, don't allow your own needs to keep you from meeting someone else's. If God has called you to something great, by the way, he has, then he will provide exactly what you need, exactly when you need it to answer that calling. C.S. Lewis once said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Let's finish the story for today, verse 30 to the end of the chapter. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul makes one final request in this part of the letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And now look, if you read through Paul's letters, for him to say, I urge you to pray for me, or I implore you 
to pray for me or even I appeal to you to pray for me, that would all be normal enough of a request from Paul. We see that over and over with him. But when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that is not only not normal for Paul to say, but it's, it's a strong indication that he's not really interested in a formal, tepid, a nice, run-of-the-mill sounding prayer. No, Paul is passionately requesting that the church join with him in his struggle by praying white-hot, desperate prayers on his behalf as he faces increasingly fierce opposition while answering God's call on his life. Listen, Paul's need is great. It's, it's as great as it gets. And yet, rather than allowing the size of the need to diminish his calling, instead he appeals to the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to join him in his calling, to join him in the struggle against the principalities and powers that strive against him by striving with him in powerful, spirit-led prayer. It is, in fact, central to the calling of every Christian to bring a prayer offering daily for our brothers and sisters around the world and right here at home. Those who are being fiercely opposed by the powers of darkness trying to prevent them from carrying out their calling. So for our missionaries and our pastors and our neighbors and our families and our friends who are answering the call of God in their lives and at the same time being bombarded by the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places because at any moment in time, listen, at any moment in time, there are people all around you. In fact, people sitting next to you today who are fighting battles you know nothing about. Right? So maybe it's time you decided to join them in the struggle. How do I do that? Well, first of all, you have to ask them how they're doing. You have to connect and then find out how you can pray for them and then you strive with them by praying white, hot, desperate prayers, powerful, spirit-led prayers that shake the heavens and move the mountains and calm the seas. Listen, at times in our lives, God allows us to get to a place of desperation. He will. A place where his divine intervention is the only answer. You know why? Because it's the greatest times of desperation that produce the greatest potential for change. Right? Let's be honest. People want all kinds of things in their lives to be different. But generally speaking, they want them to be different without having to change anything about themselves. The problem with that is your life isn't going to change until you are willing to change. But again, most of us, we're not, we're not willing to change, at least not most of the time at least until we become desperate for something to change. Because when everything is going your way, well, there's no reason to change anything. No, it's when things are not going your way to the point of desperation that we become open, willing to change. And that's also when your prayers, by the way, are most effective. When you and others pray out of a real sense of desperation, because now... Now God has something he can work with. People who are so desperate, they're willing to actually change. It's also why all of the prayers that you could ever pray in your entire life, right? of, of all the prayers you could ever pray in your entire life, one of the most powerful, effective prayers of them all is also one of the simplest. In fact, you can pray this prayer in three simple words. 
Lord, change me. That's it. Lord, change me. By the way, that one simple prayer is one he is sure to answer every single time. And so for that reason, I tell people, you better not pray it if you don't mean it because that prayer is almost never answered when everything is going your way. Because again, when everything's going your way, there's, there's no motivation to change, which is why the most, listen, the most significant and lasting changes that can happen in your life typically happen during the hardest times of your life. That's a fact. The most significant and lasting changes that happen in our lives typically happen during the hardest times of our lives when we pray white, hot, powerfully, spirit-led, desperate prayers. Right? If there was ever anyone in the Bible who had a reason to pray some profoundly desperate prayers, it was David. And listen, when you read through the Psalms, as desperate as David's prayers often were, they were never hopeless. This is a really important point, okay? Desperation in our prayers is not the same thing as hopelessness in our prayers. David was often desperate when he prayed, but he was never hopeless. Paul, as we see, often prayed desperate prayers, but he was never hopeless. And do you know that God wants you to pray desperate prayers, not hopeless prayers, but desperate prayers? In 597 BC, the Israelites were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, the people of God were desperate for a change. And so in Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, when you're desperate enough that you're willing to change whatever it takes in your own life, and you seek me with all your heart in that moment, you will seek me, buddy, you're going to find me. God wanted them to seek him out of their desperation. Why? That they might be changed, inclined toward God instead of constantly being inclined toward themselves. Likewise, the prophet Isaiah spoke with great sorrow about the lack of desperation for God. In Israel, he says, there's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Isaiah 64, 7, they're all walking around in a spiritual slumber. No, God wants us people to wake up and be desperate for him, to seek him, when in reality, most of us spend far more time trying to satisfy ourselves. Do you realize, this was a hard uh, realization for me to come to, do you realize that the vast majority of our problems come from us doing what we want to do? The vast majority of my problems in this life have come from me doing exactly what I wanted to do. Instead of what God was telling me to do. So just because you have the freedom or opportunity to do something you want to do, it doesn't mean you should do it. Right? If your heart, if my heart immediately inclines to what we want instead of what God wants when those two things aren't the same, then the answer is our hearts need to change. But I'm just telling you, we, we rarely ever change until we become desperate for a change. And so because of that, God often allows us to come to the end of ourselves in order that we would recognize our great need for him. And that's why we can and should pray desperate prayers. 
desperate prayers that are also filled with hope and filled with joy and even filled with peace as we join with one another, our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers, our sons and daughters in Christ, even in times of our own great need to pray white, hot, powerfully spirit-led, desperate prayers. Because listen, desperate prayers are powerful prayers that God answers in powerful ways, which usually begins by changing us first through those prayers. That's why it's such an important part of the calling of every Christian, because it works. How many stories have you heard in your life about hopelessly lost people headed down the fast lane toward hell who were miraculously saved, transformed by the power of the gospel because of the desperate prayers of a mother or a grandmother? Just visit our Solutions Campus and you'll hear those stories over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because desperate prayers are powerful prayers. You see, when God's people come together, we lift one another up, we pray for one another, right? we offer what we've been given even out of our own need to meet someone else's need, that's how you answer the call of God on your life. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing more acceptable to God than that. 